and uh, Katie's dad, who's also a missionary down in, in uh, Mexico, had a vehicle that needed to come back to BC. So we spent three days in a 1992 Chevy pickup truck, which uh, there, there are better ways to spend three days, but it wasn't bad. I got to tell you, it was, it was glorious, and I want to talk about that. But, but the, the beauty that we saw down in Phoenix, I mean, it was great to see Denver and Katie, but I'll just be honest with you. The real beauty of that whole trip was our granddaughter, Noelle. Like, she is, she's, that's why we went down there. I mean, if, if Denver and Katie would have just dropped Noelle off and left, we would, I think we'd have been okay with that. Um, and I'll just be honest, one of the reasons I love to come to Emmanuel or come to Vernon or be here this morning, wonderful to see Tyler and Stephanie, but the reality is after this is done, we're going to go to their place and I get to see Mia and Eli and Nora. That's kind of the highlight of my day today, other than preaching to you. That's, don't lean on. But that's going to be big. And, and why? Because, because there's beauty there. We, I see beauty in my grandkids. They're beautiful, and there's glory when you see that kind of stuff. And then we got in the car, like I said, or in that pickup truck, and we drove back 3,000 kilometers through Nevada and then Utah and southern Idaho all the way up into Idaho, Washington, and then home. Uh, on, on Friday evening, and we saw a lot of majesty, a lot of glory, a lot of splendor in nature. We went through the Joshua Tree Forest in Zion National Park, at least sort of cut on the edge of that, and the Rocky Mountains, and we were driving into uh, Salt Lake City on um, Wednesday night, and the sun was setting, it was, it was clear, and it, this, this, this red glow, pink glow on the mountains to the west, uh, it was just, it was glorious. It was, there was splendor there, majesty. And, uh, and then leaving the next day and getting into Idaho, if you've ever driven up I-15, you know, you're, you're way up there. We're, we're at like 6,500 feet. Uh, and it looks like plains, uh, like not, not plains, but pl- like plains, like fields. And, um, and it was just awesome. Glory, glory everywhere. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you don't need to turn to this text. That's, this is not our main text, but it's to set us up for some thoughts that God's laid on my heart for us this morning. He says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So there's, he's doing something in this world, in Vernon. The devil is doing something. He's blinding people's eyes from what? To keep them from seeing The light of the gospel, listen now, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, so we're we're talking about, we've been talking about glory, majesty, splendor, beauty, magnificence. And the devil's main goal in this world, there's one main goal that the devil has here in Vernon, in the Okanagan, up in the Shuswap, BC, Canada, around the world. He's got one main goal, and his main goal is to keep people blind Keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of of Christ. So he doesn't want people to see Jesus as magnificent and and full of splendor and majestic and beautiful. He doesn't want people to see that. And so, so he doesn't want the light to shine into their hearts and expose things in their life so that they might see how beautiful Jesus is. And so he blinds people. Now, now, the truth is that Satan doesn't give a rip if you see glory and beauty and splendor and ma- uh, magnificence uh, or, or majesty in other places. He doesn't care about that. As a matter of fact, if, if he can distract you 
and, and get people to settle for temporal beauty, temporal magnificence or majesty, temporal splendor, temporal beauty. Uh, if he can keep them there, he wins. He just doesn't want people to see the light of the gospel, of the glory, the splendor of Jesus. Now, here's my fear, and I pastored for 25 years out in Manitoba and in Prince Edward Island, and now been doing this thing with Miller for the last few years. And in my traveling, and it doesn't, it's not even in my traveling in churches, this is Steve Jantz. Let, let's just be real here. This is my life. There are times in my life that I begin to be blind to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It can happen in our lives as followers of Jesus. Now, the text clearly says that it's unbelievers who the enemy wants to keep blind. But my fear is that sometimes that trickles into our Christian circles too, that we, that we become blind to the glory of Jesus the splendor of Jesus. And I, I think that Sunday morning is one of those times when our hearts can be recalibrated towards the things of God. It's, I'm glad you're here. I'm sure that there have been things this week that have, that, have, that have, you know, made you hit the ditch one way or the other. None of us come out of this past week unscathed, right? There are issues and stuff of li- the stuff of life that, that kind of batter us around. And, and this just allows us to sit back. We sing worship songs. I'm so thankful for the worship team. Did not collaborate with them about the songs that should be sung. And God in his sovereignty just orchestrates it all, right? And, and we're singing songs that kind of flow with what God has laid on my heart to share with you. And, and so we come here and we have our hearts recalibrated toward Jesus. And so that's my desire this morning. If I have my main thought for you today, it would be this. That, that I want us all to be amazed again and strengthened in our faith by the beauty, the splendor, the majesty of the glory of Jesus in the gospel. That's what I desire, that we leave here just our hearts full, a a little fuller than when we came in, with how beautiful Jesus is, and the light of the gospel shining brightly in our hearts again. And what an appropriate way to then enter into the communion uh, table as well here in a little bit. So, you got your Bibles, right? You have your Bibles here? Sundays, bring your Bibles, follow along. Ephesians chapter 2 is going to be our main text this morning, and we're going to What I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me tell you what I'd like you to see in these verses. Um, I I want you to see one shocking reality about you and me. There's a shocking reality that we're going to discover. And and for those, I'm guessing that most of you have read Ephesians many, many times. And Ephesians chapter 2, especially verses uh, 7 and 8, um, or 8 and 9, rather, those are kind of pinnacle verses, right? We, we learn those verses in Sunday school and in kids' club and youth, and, and I'm sure you, many of you know uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift from God. Um, but there is a shocking reality that we need to come to grips with that's going to help us in having our hearts strengthened with the gospel. The other thing that I wanna, want you to see is, is a stunning reality about God. So a shocking reality about you, a, a stunning reality about God, and then how do we respond to this, and then, and then we'll be done. That's as, that's as easy as it is this morning, okay? So let's begin. As we lead into this shocking reality about you and me and every other person in this world, there are some critical defining statements that are going to lead us to this shocking reality. 
And there's three of them. So let's begin in verse 1. And we'll just read down to the end of, or the middle of, of verse 3. And then let me point them out to you. And you're going to see them. They're just as clear as can be. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So there's three statements here that are going to lead us to this shocking reality, which we haven't read yet, because um, don't look down at your Bibles. Don't keep reading now. We'll get there in a minute. Now go ahead. You'll see it. Here it is. Here's the first critical defining statement. We're all born spiritually dead. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You know that when you're born into this world, you're born dead. We're not talking physical death. We're talking spiritual death. Webster defines death as the end of life or the total and permanent cessation of all the vital functions of an organism. When God created Adam and Eve, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to find there this intimate life-giving relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. It's clear. God would come and they would have fellowship together. And when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God by eating the fruit that God had clearly said, don't eat, that's where death entered in. Now, God was gracious because Adam and Eve, God would not have done them wrong if he would have just killed them and put them to death physically that day. He would not have been doing wrong because he said, the, the day you eat of this fruit, surely that's the day you're going to die. But God was merciful and he allowed them to live physically, but that day death came, spiritual death. And that intimate relationship, that, that, that vitality of intimacy that a Adam and Eve had with God was severed and they were kicked out of the garden. And we read now in Romans chapter 5 that sin entered, came into the world by one man and death through sin. And as much as I love my grandkids, and I do love them a lot, the reality is that Nora and Eli and Mia and Noel all were born with a sinful nature. And what I, what I find amazing is, uh, even as I'm thinking about our two boys, Denver and Tyler, I never had to teach them to be bad. It's an amazing thought, right? Like, wh why is that? Because by nature, we're born with sin in our life. We don't become sinful because we sin. We sin because we're born sinful. We rightly inherit sinfulness, a sin nature, when we're born into this world. And that's a problem, because sin is rebellion against God. And it says here that we are dead in trespasses and sins. So that's the first critical statement. The second critical statement is that we all follow the ways of the world. It says in verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. And this, now this is past tense. Paul is writing to the church believers and, and I suspect that most of you, if not all of you this morning, follow Jesus. You love Jesus. I, I don't know that for sure. I don't want to be presumptuous here to think that there might not be somebody here who doesn't know Jesus yet in an intimate and a personal way. But I'm guessing that most of you do. And so this would be for you also past tense, that there was a, a time in your life that you walked, past tense, following the course of this world. You should ask the question then at this point, well, what does it mean to follow the course of this world? 
And in the context of this text, Paul gives us the answer. If you just skip down uh, to verse 3, he, here's the answer. This is what it means to walk uh, or to follow the course of this world. Paul says this, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so there's this idea that, that following the ways of this world or following the course of this world has this idea of pursuing our own fleshly passions and desires. I tell our students at Miller when we're studying the gospel, I tell them this. I say that our daily battle as believers is a battle of desire. Will I desire Jesus over everything else? That's your battle every day. And there are some days when God is going to be kind and gracious. He's always kind and gracious. But you're going to submit to his work in your life and you're going to win. And there are some days, I guarantee it, that you're going to start looking to find your desires or, or the satisfaction of your, your desires in the things of this world. And Paul calls these things passions of your flesh or desires of the body and the mind. And we know what those are. There's lots of them in our life, right? This war that's going on in our life. And, and we pursue the passions of the flesh, our natural sinful state, and we do exactly what everybody else is doing here in Vernon and up in Salmon Arm and in Kelowna. People are living for today. I, I sit on, I'm at the fire hall in Sunnybrae at Tap, in Tappan. And, and the, the conversation with men and women that I, I've grown to love, they don't talk about spiritual things. They never do. Or I should say never. Seldom do. They're talking about the things of this life, this flesh, this earth. Paul says, Christian, set your affections on things above. And it says here that this is how we used to live. We used to follow the course of the world where we're going to satisfy the passions and the desires of, of, of our flesh in worldly pursuits. And you know what happens when, when we pursue things in this world? We're always left wanting, right? It's like drinking salt water, right? Not very fun. What does drinking a lot of salt water do? Makes you thirstier. And when we pursue the things of this world to gratify our flesh, the things of our mind, it never truly satisfies. Maybe for a short moment it does, but not, never long term. And that's how we're described. We're, we're following the ways of this world. And here's the third critical statement that's going to lead us to the shocking reality that we all experience and are all familiar with. We follow the devil and we disobey God. That's, a, that's quite a statement. I'm sure that if you were to do a survey, well, let's maybe just look at it here first of all. In verse 2, it says, in which we once walked, following the course of the world, watch now, following the prince of the power of the air. We're followers of the devil. That the prince of the power of the air refers to. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, we're not obeying God. So, so not only do we follow the devil, we disobey God. And I'm sure if you were to walk through the streets of Vernon and just do a random survey and say, hey, just answer yes or no. Are you a follower of the devil? <laughs> what do you think the response would be? Oh, you might get one nut who says, yeah, yeah, I, I love the devil, right? But, and maybe he does, who knows? But the reality is most people would say, no, I'm not a follower of the devil. If there even is a devil, I'm not a follower of the devil. And yet Paul says, if we are in our dead state, if we're pursuing the 
things of this world, following the course of this world, another descriptor is that we're actually followers of the devil. We follow him. The things that he wants are the things that we pursue. Those are staggering thoughts and staggering words. And then we come to this, this shocking reality. Because we're dead in our sin, because we follow the ways of the world, because we satisfy our passions that are influenced and directed by the devil and we're following him, it says here in the, the end of chapter or verse 3 that we are all children of wrath. Take a look at it. It says, among whom we all once lived, verse 3, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In our natural spiritual dead state, in our unregenerate state, we are, it says here, under God's wrath. His anger, his, his indignation is upon you and me. In our dead state. That's what the Bible says. This is, this is not what Steve Jantz is saying. This is what the scripture says. That in our rebellious state, God's wrath rightly, justly rests on you and me. We stand condemned. We're guilty. And justly and rightly are deserving of God's judgment and wrath on us. And everybody else in Vernon who has not been born again. And you might say, back, back off a little bit, Steve. That seems a little bit harsh. After all, don't we live in 2020? <laughs> Soften it a little bit. Take it easy with this wrath stuff. It's a tad harsh. This God's punishment stuff. We live in Canada, after all, right? It's a Canadian culture. We don't talk th about this kind of stuff. Uh, and if we do, it's kind of like under, under, you know, quietly things like that. So maybe just back off a little bit. And one of the reasons we recoil at this kind of talk, and can I maybe just say a side note, this is not just a Canadian thing. This is a human thing. There's not any human being that likes to talk about God's wrath being on them. Not one person. There's not one person that says, oh, I think being under God's wrath is fantastic. I love God's wrath. Well, there is a way, and I suppose we would say we love God's wrath, but that's a different theological discussion. But the reality is that, that we all recoil at this kind of talk because we don't actually see our sin as being as bad as it really is. How could God really be angry with me? Because I'm certainly not like that guy or that guy or that woman and we like to soften the bad stuff in our lives a little bit, don't we? And the reason that we don't see this, our sin as, the, as bad as it really is is because we're focused on the wrong thing. We're not focused on the right thing. Have you ever um, been on Amazon or on an electronics website and you're looking, let, let's say you're just looking to buy a stereo for your car. And so you pull up two or three different options and sometimes Amazon or an electronics website will have a comparison chart right so you click this one click this one click this one and then there's a little button at the bottom that says compare and then a screen will open up and here's option A with all of the specs here's option B with all the specs and option C with all the specs and the price at the bottom which is probably the most important spec right it's like well I'm going to just buy the cheapest one if you're a Mennonite like me you know, that's the way it goes it's like I want the cheapest 
But, you know, it'll tell you all the, all, they're all in line. This one has this, this one doesn't, this one doesn't. This one has this many whatever, and this one has more, and this one has less. And you do the comparison. You compare one with the other. And that's kind of what we do with ourselves and with our sin. We, we, we look at ourselves, and, and the reason we recoil at this thinking that God is really angry with me even though I might admit, yeah, I, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. Yes, yes, I am pursuing the, the things of this world. Yes, I, I guess by definition I'm a follower of the devil. But I'm really not that bad. And the reason we say that is because we watch Netflix documentaries where there's some really bad people. And it's like, well, I'm not like that. And we kind of wipe our brow a little bit. It's like, okay, well, that's really bad and I'm not that bad problem once again is we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing and if we focus on the right thing perhaps we would see how bad things really are and we'd be shocked as a matter of fact we might be devastated even and the right thing to compare ourselves with is not another person but it's God and when we compare ourselves with God when we get a glimpse of his glory circle back to that thought his majesty his greatness, his purity, his holiness, his righteousness, then by God's grace we might see how offensive our sin really is. And here's the deal. The devil wants to keep people blind from seeing that. He doesn't want people to see the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, so that they don't see how sinful they are. Because if they get a glimpse at his holiness and his purity and how so utterly different he is from you and me and how much he hates sin and how pure he is that even my slightest little rebellious act against him like eating a piece of fruit that brought sin into the whole world I mean it, it couldn't have been any simpler than that I mean that is so small in comparison to our list of comparison sins don't eat of this fruit because the day you will, you'll surely die. And they did. And death entered the world. And sin entered the world. And death by sin. And so the enemy doesn't want us to see his purity, his holiness, his absolute perfection. And he can keep us proud in our own sin. And we're not like that. And the Bible's really clear that God opposes the proud. But he pours out grace to the humble. My mind goes to a story in Isaiah. You probably remember the story of Isaiah in chapter 6 where he goes to the temple and there he gets a glimpse of God's holiness and it's an amazing story here's a younger Isaiah before he's called this is actually his calling into prophetic ministry he goes into the temple and he sees or gets a glimpse of God's holiness and the description is phenomenal and the temple is shaking smoke everywhere the train of God's robe is filling the temple and the angels are flying back and forth saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and the word holy there means sacred and pure and consecrated. And this is what Isaiah comes, this is the confrontation that he has face to face with this holy and righteous God. So pure, so brilliant. His physical eyes can hardly bear it. And he sees how holy and sacred and pure and consecrated God is. And as he gazes at God's holiness and his purity, he sees how miserable he is. And his response is not, not surprising. He says, woe is me. 
for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and live amongst the people of unclean lips. I mean, even that, even that recognition. He's probably, I'm, my thinking is, that I've studied Isaiah a little bit, he's just talking about the hypocrisy in his life. And he recognizes that the things that he's saying is different than his heart. And even that condemns him before this holy God. And that seems kind of low on the sin scale again, right? Hypocrisy. He's not like saying, I'm, an, I'm a murderer and an adulterer. Woe's me, for I'm undone. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's all he says. Face to face with the holiness of God. Recognizes he deserves to die. We don't say, woe is me in our Canadian vernacular. Woe is me is kind of like, oh shoot, I'm in big trouble. That's woe is me. It's an emotional response. I don't want to be trite about it, but it is like, I may as well die right now. I'm as good as dead. That's what it means. Woe is me for I'm undone. I'm guilty. And the reason Isaiah came to grips with his sinfulness was because he got a glimpse of God's holiness. He recognized that his sin really brought him to a place of God's wrath being on him, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are all under God's wrath. I, we had a lot of skunks when we were pastoring, and we lived in PEI. Denver and Tyler were born in PEI. Just a ton of skunks in PEI. And there are no natural predators for skunks on the island. We don't... I mean, there's some foxes now, but there were no, and so they just, they just multiply. And we lived 35 miles from Charlottetown, and we would often drive to Charlottetown, and for, f- for sure we would pass two or three dead skunks on the road, and it would be like, oh, there's another one, and we'd go. <gasps> oh, not gone yet, right? You know, I mean, the, the smell of a skunk is just terrible. You ever, you ever think about this? Do you think a skunk knows how bad he smells? I don't know. I've never had a chat, but I, I envision like a skunk small group, right? Is a skunk sitting in a small group together? Uh, I don't know if skunks do that. Probably not. But let's just imagine a skunk small group. Nobody's pointing out how terrible the other skunk next to him st- smells. Like, man, you stink today. Well, you stink. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't know what they say, but you get the idea, right? They all think it's all pretty normal. Their stink is normal to them. I think. I don't know. Huh. Not normal to me. What if I could for a moment just take my human nose and put it on a skunk in a skunk small group? You know what a skunk would say? Woe is me. I'm as good as dead. This is terrible. What's going on? If, if a skunk compares himself to another skunk, it's not going to be that bad. It's like, well, eh. And if we compare ourselves to other things, it's not going to be so bad. But brother, sister, friend here this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you put your life under the light of God's holiness, you're going to recognize you rightly deserve his wrath. You've rebelled. You've sinned. You've shaken your fist at him and said, I know better than you. And you will say, woe is me. Here's the point. The travesty of our sin, the enormity of our sin, the magnitude of our sin, the bigness of the consequence of our sin, listen carefully, will always be proportionate to our understanding of God and his holiness. And so if you have a really small view of your sinfulness, you should beg God to give you a glimpse of his holiness. And the way, the way you're going to do that is by being in here. So maybe just a side note, are you spending time here? When, 
When's the last time you opened this up and said, Lord Jesus, would you show me yourself? God, would you show me yourself? Let me see your holiness. Let me see how big you are, how mag- magnificent, how full of splendor you are. I need to get that so that it will have an impact in my life. Be people of the word. I know many of you are. I know some of you folks here, and I know you're in the word. But some of you I don't know, so that's the, like, are you here? Are you there? You need to see God's holiness. You need to see his beauty, his bigness, his greatness. Spend time here. Find God here. Our sin and the heaviness, the bigness of it, is always proportionate to our understanding of God's holiness. The bigger God appears, the holier he, he appears, the more magnificent he is to us, the greater our sin will appear. And this shocking reality um, that we're rightly under God's wrath needs to settle in our minds and, in, and move our hearts to a place of hopelessness and helplessness. It's the only way anybody's ever going to get saved is if they get to a point where it's like, I'm done. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I can't help myself. I've got a glimpse of who God is and I've seen my own sinfulness and I, I'm in desperate need. The only person who ever cries out for help is the person who recognizes they need help. Not the person who thinks they've got it together, who's excusing their sin. Somebody swimming across a shoe swap, and we can all see that he's drowning. He thinks he's fine, and he's going to drown unless he comes to the recognition, oh man, I think I am drowning, and he reaches out and says, would you please save me? Would you pull me into the boat? And that's what this is going to do. When we get a glimpse of God's holiness, when we see how big he is, we're going to understand what Paul says because of our a deadness in sin because we are followers of this world, because we're followers of the devil, we're pursuing our own passions, we rightly deserve God's wrath in our life. And then we come to two of the most amazing but simple words in the whole Bible, in this text, Ephesians chapter 2. Small words can be powerful words. And can I remind you that this is God's word, and God's word is infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired, and so even the small words matter And here is what we read after this description of your life and my life. And if we were just to close the book now and say, well, have a good day. Enjoy the rest of your life. That would be miserable, but but here we have it. Here are the next two words, but God. Wonderful words. Wonderful words like, but God. But God what? But God. And here is the stunning reality about God. He's rich in mercy, full of great love, and full of grace. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So he's full of mercy, and he's full of great love, and he's gracious, stunning. I love mercy. You know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you rightly deserve. And we just read what we rightly deserve. His wrath. It says it right here. We rightly deserve his wrath, but mercy is is. I'm not going to give you what you rightly deserve. And here, mercy is greater than any sin that we could ever commit. It's an amazing truth. And how great is his love? He says his great love here. His love is so great that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. That Jesus saw your sinfulness. He saw your rebellion. He saw my waywardness. He saw that I was pursuing lesser satisfactions. He saw that I was a follower of the devil pursuing the things of this world, rightly under his wrath, and Jesus, in his great love, says, I'm going to die for Steve. I'm going to take the wrath that belongs on him, I'm going to take it upon myself, and 
And Jesus goes to the cross, and there he takes the full fury of the wrath of God against sin on himself when it should have been on me. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ became our substitute and died for us. He took our punishment. And what about grace? Well, grace is all about God's action. It's all about what God is doing. It's all about God's help. If I'm gracious to you, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what I'm doing, right? If, if I'm being, and grace means undeserved favor or undeserved merit. If I, if I, if I go to Chris and I just, I give him all kinds of stuff and I, you know, um, take him out for dinner and I give him a plane ticket to Hawaii. I'm not going to do that, by the way, Chris. And it's all, it's all undeserved. He didn't, like, there's nothing he did to deserve that. It's my action. 10,000 times bigger is God's grace towards you and me. That he saves us. And this is grace undeserved. He brings us to life. Nothing here in this text about your own goodness. Nothing in this text about your good deeds. Nothing in this text here about your own effort or becoming good. Or nothing about your performance. Nothing about you. It's all about God and his grace. Undeserved favor. His mercy, rich in mercy, great in love. And by grace you've been saved. That's how you're saved. You can't perform good enough. The stuff that you've done cannot be undone by your goodness. There's no amount of good stuff that you can do to undo your bad stuff. It's like you getting caught stealing a Mercedes here in Vernon. And you stand in front of the judge and the judge says, you stole a Mercedes. And you say to the judge, yes, but I walked past 50 other Mercedes and I didn't steal those. That should count for something. The judge is going to look and say, that doesn't even make sense. And our, our good deeds cannot undo our sinfulness. And so... We recognize this, and just really quickly as we wind things up here, in his great mercy, in his rich mercy, in his great love, in his grace, he makes us alive. Take a look at it. He says here in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He makes us alive, and that, the theological term for that is regeneration. And it simply means that he takes your heart of stone. Ezekiel says he takes your heart of stone. What, how much blood does a stone pump? Zero. So he takes that hard, cold, hard stone heart, and he gives you a heart of flesh. And you know what happens when you get a new heart? New desires, new affections, new ambitions, new goals, and they're all Godward. And the, the minute you start veering away from that is when you're going to start recognizing again, oh, I need your help, Jesus. But the new heart is going to be evidence. Paul said it well, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's talking about a new heart. And in his rich mercy and great love and grace, he raises us up with Christ. Look at verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I wish I had more time because there are two beautiful doctrines in here that talk about our standing and our position. The fact that Jesus, because of his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection, because of his work on the cross, he, he can rightly justify you. He declares you righteous so that the heavenly, if you know Jesus this morning, this is an amazing thing. It doesn't matter what you did this past week. If you know Jesus and he saved you, he's given you a new heart, he sees you as absolutely righteous today. Because he doesn't see your sin, he sees Christ's righteousness that's been imputed or placed on you. 
and that's our standing before God. It's unbelievable. Because I know how miserable I can be from day to day. And the struggles that I have and you have. And yet what a glorious truth that if it, if it depended on me, then it would be different. But it doesn't depend on me. It's God's grace, right? Again, we see that. And then our, our, not only our standing, but our position. He says that we're seated with Christ or in Christ. We're reconciled. We're brought back into relationship, rightful relationship with him. And it's in his presence that, that we find fullness of joy and, and um, um, pleasures forevermore. And then there's a future hope that we read about here as well. If you just look at it in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's a better day coming. Brother, sister, understand this. Remember this. Do not be so earthly minded that you forget what this is all about. Paul says, set your affections on things above. And here Paul reminds us that if we're in Christ, not only is our position secure, our standing is secure, he's brought us to life, he's given us a new heart, but there's also a coming age where he's going to show us immeasurable riches. You know what it means to, you know what immeasurable means? You can't measure them. And the riches of his grace cannot be measured one day in heaven. And that's your hope, follower of Jesus. It's my hope. I live for that. It, it, it allows me to go through some really hard times in this life knowing that this is a reality. This future hope. That there are immeasurable riches in glory one day that await those of us who love Jesus. So what's our response? Verses 8, 9, and 10. Really simple. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. If it was your own doing, what would you do? You'd boast and brag. Look at me. I did it. Yay. But it's, it's nothing of you. It's all of God. It's grace. It's a gift. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. No glory goes to you. No splendor goes to you. No magnificence, majesty, beauty. Uh, no glory goes to you. All the glory goes where? To Jesus. Why? Because the giver gets the glory. He's the one that saved you. He's the one that poured out his spirit on you. He's the one that brought you to life. He gets all the glory. And then here it is, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not by good works. You're not saved by good works, but you're created for good works, and you're his workmanship. You are his workmanship. Christian, you're his workmanship. Are you serving him? Are you loving him by serving others? By using the gifts that he's given you? Which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me just conclude by saying this. Our response then to this shocking, terrible news that we're under God's wrath, followed by this stunning truth about God that he's rich in mercy, full of great love and full of grace, which can bring us to life, which uh, gives us a right standing, a right position before him, is something that we proclaim and we embrace. And if you've done that this morning, then you should rejoice. Then, then these truths should fill your heart with awe and wonder. Again, the truth of the gospel. And that your affections would be bent towards Jesus a little bit more today. That you would adore Jesus a little bit more. That you'd be a little bit more devoted to him because of our time here this morning. And that your heart would be strengthened by the gospel. That you might be moved and spurred on to deeper obedience. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, then can, can I just say to you that you're still under God's wrath? That's a terrible place to be. But there's provision for you. There's provision. It's his rich mercy. 
and his great love and his grace that is free to you. And what you need to do is by faith, submit yourself and embrace what Jesus has done for you. That's what it says here. By faith, you've been saved through grace. Not of yourself, just by faith. Simply one of uh, the men um, in the first service came and said, you know, the only thing we bring to our, the only thing we bring to our salvation is so good. The only thing that we bring to the table in terms of our salvation is our sinfulness. It's the only thing we bring, which is amazing because Jesus takes that then and deals with it on the cross. That's the best you can bring is filthy rags and says it's not good enough, but let me give you Christ's righteousness. So let me close by just showing you something here, and we're going to close in chapter 3, the very end. But look at verse 11. In your Bibles, you see verse 11, it says, Therefore, wherever you see the word therefore, you need to ask, Wherefore is the therefore therefore? Sounds like a Bible school prof, right? Or person. I'm not a prof. The therefore ties the next thoughts, verses 11 down, to the previous thoughts, which is gospel-centric. You were sinful. Jesus rescued you. Now live for him. That's what we just read. That, I mean, that's a summary of verses 1 to 10 of chapter 3. Therefore, and then Paul says whatever he says. And then if you skip down to verse, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, once again, those small connecting words. For this reason, once again, connecting it back to the beginning of chapter 2. And then if you go down to verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee. I'm going to pray for you because of all this. And it's like one long thought that comes out of chapter 2 and chapter 3. And this is how it ends. And this is how we're going to end in verse 20 of chapter 3. So now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be what? Glory. Splendor. Majesty. Beauty. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you are in the business of rescuing people 